Hey everyone, this is Dr. Fox, and thank you again for supporting CRPN and CRPN Central Podcast. To continue our mission, please like, subscribe, and share this content with your professional community. Please contact us today at info at crpnet.com for details. CRPN Central is brought to you by MedVector. MedVector allows community physicians to maintain control of the patient relationship with clinical trial participants, while experienced PIs and sites can maintain the control of protocol and GCP. I have seen time and time again patients throughout our community who are not on trials. Why? What are the reasons? MedVector provides a solution for sites to break down these community barriers and to offer access to clinical research for everyone who's interested. If you have a chance, contact MedVector at medvector.com and tell them that CRPN Central sincerely appreciates their support. This episode of CRPN Central is brought to you by Save Our Sites. It's a conference built by sites for sites. Look, I've been at some of these conferences and I can tell you that they're great for networking. They're great for going on vacation to a resort. But when they talk about things, it seems like the exact same thing they talked about last year or the year before or 10 years prior. There hasn't really been a whole lot that's changed. Then you find out that when you have to pay so much money to enter, nobody can access it. So who are we helping in the first place? Save Our Sites is different. Save Our Sites is founded by clinical site administrators. It's four sites, and we want to make sure that we can reduce every possible barrier for our clinical site administrators to come to a conference, talk about what they need, and get something done. February 2nd, 2024. Tucson, Arizona, please consider registering. For more information, go to saveoursites.com. I'm scared, Doc. What am I going to do? This diagnosis is a life changer. Or ender. And it doesn't seem like there's much hope for care. Well, there is one opportunity. I have a colleague who is performing a clinical trial. It has demonstrated promising results in earlier phases. The catch... Is located on the other side of the country, and you may have to move to enroll. Well, I guess it is better to move and live than to stay and die. I wish you could go through this trial with me. You know my story, and I really don't want to start over with another physician. May I contact your colleague? If I qualify, I'll quit my job, uproot my family, and move across the country to access the trial that could save my life. Of course. I'm not an experienced researcher, and it isn't part of my practice, but I will be happy to make the connection. Six months later. Hello. I'm all moved into our new life. I'm here to participate in the clinical trial you qualified me for. I'm so sorry. You are qualified for the trial, and we are ready to enroll patients. However, unfortunately, there is not yet a contract signed with the client. That means we can't enroll patients yet until we establish a contract and a budget for the trial. But... I gave up everything for this trial. My life is at stake here, and you can't get a contract together? I'm very sorry. We are doing everything we can. The business people managing these contracts, they're not very responsive, and they've been ignoring our follow-ups for the past three months. Honestly, we don't know where we are in the process, and they never gave us a direct contact to the sponsors, so we can't follow up or escalate. Well, what am I going to do? They said I only had one year to live, and that was six months ago. We will do everything we can. Unfortunately for now, our hands are tied. We will contact you as soon as we know something. If you think this is an exaggeration, think again. This happens often right here in our industry. Patients will do whatever it takes to seek the care they need in research only to be carewalled because of legal or financial logistics. We are letting the same people down who we aspire to help, and it's all because we can't get our processes in order. If a patient walks into the door, the legal or financial or regulatory processes should not be the limiting factor, and shame on anyone out there dragging their feet to do this. 
Welcome to CRPN Central, the official podcast of the Clinical Research Payment Network. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Fox. CRPN Central discusses the real issues with our clinical research industry to explore and identify mutually beneficial solutions for all of our stakeholders. Diversity and inclusion in clinical research is critical to ensure we develop the best possible therapies for our entire population. For the past few years, we see an increasing push from industry leaders and regulators to increase enrollment diversity and patient trial population. However, we find there are many barriers between our intended diversity objectives and the outcomes we observe. Why are we running into so many hurdles? Today's episode is dedicated to diversity inclusion in our clinical research industry, meaning the promotion of fair treatment and full clinical trial participation of all people, particularly those who have historically been underrepresented or subject to discrimination. We will discuss diversity with a site administrator who experiences the challenges of offering research to diverse populations every day. Then we will have a discussion with a group of innovators who are working to expand access to research and to help to encourage diverse patient enrollments throughout our community. To maintain valid comparisons, both of these interviews, just like previous podcasts, will utilize the same questions, and my guests did not have the questions before the interviews. After our discussions, we will follow up to identify potential challenges and their resolutions to help everyone achieve positive and diverse clinical trial performances. Our first guest is a passionate consultant, site director, and a patient quality advocate from one of our CRPN Florida sites partners. Jeanette Jade Alicia directs West Palm Quality Research and actively works to serve migrant patient populations who often cannot afford readily available healthcare. As a mother of an autistic child and over 20 years of healthcare management and data analytics, Jade has experienced firsthand our society's need for research and has helped to create her site to address the burnout, overworked, and under-resourced research systems we experience every day in our society. Jade is taking a different approach in community clinical research. She actively volunteers and fosters relationships with her local physicians and community members to establish trust, understanding, and a feeling of accomplishing clinical trials on a unified front in the community. Jade is a very good friend of mine. I'm really happy to have her as a CRP and site partner. Please welcome with me, Jade Alicia. All right, Miss Jade Alicia, thank you so much for coming on to CRP and Central. It is a true honor to have you here today. It's truly a blessing to be with you and actually having this conversation. So thank you very much. So Jade, could you tell the audience just a really brief introduction about your story? I come from healthcare management and I sort of came through the backside door to research. I started a research site for a friend of mine that sold her practice, a mental health care to a big company. And instead of just trying to get trials into the office, what I did was I started networking and trying to learn about my community. So I started going out, meeting doctors, going to facilities, and grew this completely huge network with two large community centers in West Palm Beach, Florida. One is the Nicaragua Maya Center, which is a huge center for nonprofit, undocumented, uninsured patients. And the other one is the Caridad Health, which is another outreach community center for underserved communities. I'm also listed in the InCrowd, which is a huge outreach program for nonprofit organizations. And it has been a true blessing to our center because we're recognized. And I have the structure in place for networking. I have the patients that are there when we start the trials And I have a community that really needs 
help not only to better their health, but to make sure that we're doing everything possible for to lower the cost of medications, because Mm -hmm. these patients come have no insurance, no money, you know, medications are so expensive. So that's what we're trying to do. And Jade, I feel like every time I have a conversation with you, you're always volunteering at a breadline, or you're always out there in the community, trying to get your face seen by the community so that they can build up a trust with you as a clinical site director. Could you tell me about how active you are in your community to to do all of these volunteer opportunities? I volunteer every Tuesday with Share Distribution, which is a farm food distribution. And uh, we start almost in Key Largo and work our way every Tuesday up to West Palm Beach. So I am in different types of community in Miami to Broward to West Palm Beach every Tuesday, handing groceries to people that don't have the means to buy groceries at this time, which is so expensive to them. Mm -hmm. So I am always in volunteer work. And I'm always trying to get the patients or the the community to know that I'm involved. Now, I use, since I've been doing that for such a long time now, I have recognized, and now they're recognizing me when every Tuesday when I get to be a part of that volunteer work, they're approaching me. And I get to be a part of giving them information. So I am allowed to hand out flyers to communicate with them. And they're always asking me, do you have a trial? You know, where could I sign up? So I am very honored. And I'm so happy that I am doing this. I'm also a volunteer in the community health centers on Saturday in the afternoon. I get there just to put together different structures. There's a daycare, wherever they need me, that's where I'm at. And I get to know who's coming in, what are the doctors, who's the specialist, and get really to know all the community. And I also, uh, I think you're part of the autism community as well, right? I am a part of the autism community. I have a child with autism. He wants to be a physicist when he grows up. I'm in a network with the organization here in Miami for autism and just trying to inform parents of what their rights are and of course, what other resources are there and they're not alone because it's pretty hard. Well, I have to say, Jade, and for all the listeners out there, today is International Women's Day. You are by far a true example of those empowering women in our community who are doing everything they can to make a difference, whether it's from a volunteership or an advocacy for autism, or even to the development of clinical research and bringing trials to those who absolutely need it. Today's episode is interesting. It's always a hot topic in research when we talk about diversity and inclusion. Jade, I have a few questions for you. And just like the other podcasts that we've done, these questions will be asked to the other group of interviewers. Before we start, can you tell me what diversity and inclusion means to you? Diversity and inclusion means a broad of nationalities coming together, not just one set of culture but everyone actually from my standards and I'm taking different types of communities, different types of cultures, different types of backgrounds and blending it together in order for us to give that opportunity for everyone to be in a study. Like one in particular background or culture is not going to be taking medications or working on a device. Everyone needs to be completely included for the safety of the product and the safety of enrolling these type of medications out to just everyone. I agree completely, Jade. I have actually, that kind of leads into my very first question. You've been in the space, in the healthcare space for a long time. You're in the clinical trial space. Do you feel that clinical trials are as diverse as the patient populations that we serve in healthcare? No. No, in the industry's current state, what do you see as the diversity spectrum that we currently hold? 
And then where would you like to see that go? I just had a conversation with a friend of mine that is in um, North Carolina. And she is a Latina in North Carolina. And she's in research. And when she screens the patient, unfortunately, there's no type of Hispanic Latinos in the area. When they're not reaching out to a Spanish community, there's no type of Spanish community research in that section. So if it was diversity and they were including everyone into the study, then we should all have a broad spectrum of patients. In, in my area, which is Miami, Broward, and West Palm Beach, I see different sections of healthcare. You know, there's a, right next door to me, there's a medical center, which is all Black Americans. And I walked in there to introduce myself. No one speaks Spanish. And it is not a place that will welcome a Spanish person or Latin a person into that because they don't speak Spanish. They can't introduce themselves. They can't communicate. Then I have Mayas, Nicaragua's community centers with is only outreaches the wow. Hispanic <laughs> centers, you know, so I, this is where we come. This is why we do this. Our sites are in the middle of all of these healthcare centers that are reaching out to their own culture, their own way of communicating. And it's mm -hmm. okay to do that. I mean, it, it's a blessing to have these type of community centers and outreach and offices that only dedicate to an in particular culture or background. But this is where we come in. We want to be in the center of these sections and these community healthcare and these healthcare centers in order to blend them in and bring them in together for us to give the best service to all of them, you know, yeah. and reaching out to all of them means that only because a healthcare only sees that type of culture background doesn't mean that we're going to only work with them. And so. it, sometimes it seems like we have all of these little pockets of isolated diversity encouragement, but we really need kind of like that glue, especially in research, to bring it all together to maybe have more of a holistic diversity approach throughout the community, not necessarily these little pockets. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What do you think are the potential barriers that prevent the inclusion of diversity in clinical trials? Well, it's just trying to get into these healthcare organizations, trying to mm. get into these private practices. Well, private practices, I say private practices because it's very hard to get into a structure owned by investors, ACOs, MCOs. It's very hard to get into somewhere that the, the doctors are salaried. What I've done is I have communicated with private practices. They don't want to continue trying to compete with these ACOs and they're working so hard and they're tired and they're overwhelmed and they're burdened because they cannot compete so at the very end, they give up and they just have to sell their practice to a, an investor in order for them to not work so hard or not to be burned out. So trying to get our sites linked with these private practices so they can remain private practices yep. so they can keep their patients that trust them and yep. they can give them a quality service. So it sounds like just that story in particular, there were contractual barriers like trying to get in with those groups. There were financial barriers because you didn't want to disincentivize your physicians to be in research by giving up their patients or trying to lose money. And it seems like there was almost like a political barrier sometimes yeah. when you're working with these organizations 
maybe they don't want competition or maybe they're afraid of losing money or whatever it might be. You also mentioned walking into a hospital and nobody there could speak Spanish. Or if you walk into another place, someone could only they could only speak Spanish. I wonder if sometimes cultural differences like languages could be a barrier. Absolutely. Wow. All the time. When I'm volunteering, when I'm calling and, and doing my network, which I'm going office to office, mm -hmm. I run into this. So it's constantly. I've seen there's been a number of trials that require English speaking as part of the criterion, <laughs> yeah, which I means that that pretty much discourages diversity in some ways because now you're totally leaving out entire populations of people oh, yeah. who would be willing to help you. You're leaving out two huge community centers that may have four or 5,000 patients. Who are very community engaged and who are willing to step up to try to help with research. Yeah. All because of the words that we speak, not with how we feel, not with what our bodies are going through. Absolutely. But just because of culture. That seems pretty anti-diversity yeah. in some ways. Just the adding a presentation or a flyer or a display in English it's something that you're losing out. Everything I do, I translate it in Spanish and in French mm -hmm. because I want everyone to come to me because it is important for all to come. It's important yeah. for all to be aware, to be educated and to know. Just having something in English, you're losing. You're just losing out right there. You're actually discriminating. You're actually discriminating, yeah. Jade, the next question. This is, we're on question number three. Can you tell me after we've discussed the barriers, what do you think are the potential solutions to those barriers? Well, I truly believe that going into private practices, going into doctor's office, going into just imaging centers, just every every opportunity that you can get to network and be included and network with community centers around your site makes it a better site. It makes it a better way of building this community and building trust and giving them those possibilities of a better life, better medication, better devices, lower cost. Yes. The part that I absolutely love about that answer is I think that what you were saying is the solution to breaking down these barriers and encouraging diversity is just to be there. You have to be part of the community. You have to be absolutely. front and center so that you can build the trust of the community and they can support your research initiatives as patients yes. and as physicians. Yes. You are essentially doing exactly that. You are creating a community research culture that encourages complete diversity in your area. And the trust. Yes. That trust, because with that trust comes the patients and they become your friend. That's when you have them for the research trials and they're willing to stay with you just to make it better just to be in that mission with you. They believe in you. So you, how long have you been, you said June, 2022, right? Is when you started? June, June 2022, I started. Yeah. And you and I started speaking in about September. Mm -hmm. Thank you for everything that you do because starting a site when you haven't been experienced in doing that, it, you helped me out a lot. And you're always yep. there for me and guiding me. And, and it's, a, it's a blessing to have someone like you. And I remember before when you were working at your other location <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I would just send you emails like, how do I do this? What do I have to do? How do I get this? And you would like guide me constantly. And, and I thank you very much for the guidance. I thank you very much for your support, your patience. It's a true honor to be in network with CRPN and for you to support us. I did have the honor of watching you across your journey 
I had the honor of hearing the fears, the frustrations, a lot of the things of a new site director, someone literally trying to create something from the ground up. The one thing that I think that we could both say is it's kind of weird, but when we're on the other side of all of that uncertainty and things finally start to show after all of the hard work that we put into a site, it feels very good to know that what you are doing is an accomplishment. There's some time in there where you're uncertain, thinking, am I wasting my time? Is this working? I don't know if I'm even doing the right thing. Should I be doing something different because I don't see results? And then all of a sudden, everything that you started planting grows. And you realize, oh, I was just establishing my roots And now I'm in a strong position so that I can do the best possible research. As soon as you start getting those doctors and those patients coming to you saying, I trust you, you are the community subject matter expert for research. How can I help you? That is a success story. I do believe that your methods for community engagement will be the future for very strong research. I have one more question. What do you think might influence the adoption of these solutions? I believe that we are looking for those patients, but they're also there already. We just have to go out to look for them. We have to see them and we have to go out in the communities. We have to be the face that they know, they recognize, and they trust. Doctors are also frustrated with having patients two, three years in the same medication because there's nothing else. Patient sending them to specialists and, and them coming back just at a loss, not having a better solution. The patients and the doctors are in it together. Mm-hmm. We just have to make ourselves visible, make ourselves be there. I've we walked are, into, yeah, yeah, I've walked we, into pay doctor's offices and introduce myself. And that at the moment, they don't have a moment, a time for me. But when I start speaking to them, they're like, you know what, get into my office. I want to speak to you because we have the solution. We have it. I love that analogy for a long time. I always thought research was never meant to be permanent. We are meant to be the catalyst. We bring in a technology We host it until it demonstrates itself to fly on its own. And then we need to get it out into the community to help people. Yeah, absolutely. And the more diverse we become in our practices, the more we can help at a better value to our community. Thank you very much. Jade, thank you for coming to CRPN Central. I thank you for having me. Thank you very, very much for everything that you do. Oh, I'm here to serve and I'm happy to help. I'm in the mission with you. Our next guests have founded a solution that will revolutionize how we view clinical research access in our communities. Scott Stout and Ted Bardison are the co-founders of the company MedVector, an organization who offers technological utilities to sites to expand community access into local healthcare specialties. Scott worked in finance at prominent institutions such as Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo to analyze and recommend investment opportunities. Ted worked in large private practice healthcare facilities where he helped to direct a large medical service organization. Scott's financial background and Ted's understanding of healthcare systems allowed them to create an offering in MedVector that is fully compatible, compliant, and financially beneficial for everyone involved. Now, as a disclaimer, I do note that MedVector is a proud sponsor of the CRPN podcast. That will not influence these questions as they are the same ones that we asked Jade. Please welcome with me, Scott Stout and Ted Bardison. Ted Bardison, Scott Stout of MedVector. Thank you so much for coming to CRPN Central today. Dr. Fox, it's good to uh, be talking with you. Well, always a pleasure, Dr. Fox. In your own words, could you give me a brief introduction? 
Absolutely. Uh, well, let me let me take that first. I am Ted Bardison. I am a COO of MedVector. Prior to uh, being involved in this clinical trial space, I was COO of a, a multi-specialty network that was about 4,000 physicians out in the West. We also had approximately 500 physicians that were in our MSO. I am steeped in helping physicians manage their practice better, both from a, how can we find different levers to pull to pull revenue in? How can we better manage our expenses? And I know that clinical trials is something that all doctors talk about, but honestly, they're scared. I was there too. It's so strange, the differing opinions that some of our physicians have about it. And yeah. you know, I should, let me, scared is the wrong word. The unknown of what's gonna happen with their patients. Mm -hmm. How are they gonna make money? The impact on their staff. It's such a tight process to make sure that your practice is functioning correctly, financially and clinically. Those unknowns are really a problem. Scott, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure, my name is Scott Stout. I'm the CEO of MedVector. And as Ted mentioned, we're in the the clinical trial space. And one of the things that we noticed, you know, we agree with you, Dr. Fox, this space has so many different areas that need to improve. Today's episode is strictly about diversity and inclusion. And I know for a fact that everyone has diversity and inclusion on their mind. I also know for a fact that there are very few people who are doing something about it. How do you define diversity and inclusion in clinical research. Ted, you want to take that one or, or, and, and, and Daniel, this is kind of scary, man. You didn't even like warn us with the question. <laughs> oh. I like right. it. I yep. like it off the cuff. Yep. You got to be ready. Yeah. I, I I'm happy to, to, to jump in. I think that diversity many times is looked at from a racial standpoint. But that's, there's many elements of diversity and inclusion that include the sex, your orientation, the age. And I think that the reason that we don't have some solutions that are able to really pull in diversity is not because the industry doesn't care about it. But I think that there's not a way to leverage really something that's going to make, move the needle on that. And that's the relationship that the patient has to be involved in the clinical trial. And I mm -hmm. think that one of the things is... Right now, when we're trying to find participants for these trials, there's an avenue of going down social media. And they're good, they're good ways to do it. But you know, for diversity to happen, you need to lean in on the trusted relationship. And I think that's with the doctor that these mm -hmm. patients are seeing. And if we can change the conversation to focus on that, I think that is going to be the way that diversity is going to be impacted. Yeah, and obviously Ted and I are, we see eye to eye on this. The missing piece, to this whole puzzle is the treating physician. It's your doctor. Yep. So when we start talking about diversity, it's not, it's not how do we motivate this type of person to click on a Facebook ad to participate in the clinical study? This is how do we engage their doctor mm -hmm. and have their doctor talk to them about it? There's some interesting statistics out there. 70% of patients would participate in clinical research if it was recommended by their doctor. We know that patients are not afraid of participating in clinical trials. They just don't have anybody to talk to about it. You know, a lot of patient recruitment right now forces patients to be their own advocates. And one thing that we do know about patients is patients don't want to be their own advocates for the most part. When a patient doesn't feel well, they want to go to their treating physician. They want them to assess, diagnose, and prescribe something that will make them feel better. That big missing piece is the treating physician. Mm -hmm. There's this misnomer in our industry that clinical trial candidates are hard to find. And I think that this is false because if we take a step back and we think about it, clinical trial candidates are not medical mysteries. They have an existing diagnosis, they're typically on an existing medication, and they have a relationship with a treating physician. Yep. So the vast majority of candidates fall into most of those categories, if not all three. So if we can align those incentives between those treating physicians and the investigator teams, that's where the solution hides. Mm -hmm. And that patient is the one who chooses their treating physician. So if you were to include that treating physician into the clinical research equation, you would be essentially allowing that patient the choice to perform trials via their physician. You got it. You got it. And what the industry is trying to do right now, and it's, it's kind of laughable when we say it out loud, but we want more investigators. How do we, how do we make it to where every doctor can be an investigator? And that's just absurd. Nope. <laughs> because no. doctors, most doctors don't even want to be investigators, let oh. alone do the digital searches through their practices to see who's a candidate. Just having the bandwidth of saying every doctor should be able to do this is a challenge. 
more mm-hmm. so it's how do we work with our sites? How do we empower our sites to engage the physicians that they have an existing relationship that otherwise aren't referring their patients to clinical trials? So when we empower our sites to engage those treating physicians and find a path forward to where those treating physicians do not have to become investigators and they do not have to give their patients away, that's the holy grail of patient recruitment. And the holy grail of diversity. As you access those physicians, you're going to access different little pockets of diversity throughout your community, and you're going to bring them all together into a single trial enrollment. Great segue into diversity. Question one, are clinical trials as diverse as the patient populations we serve in healthcare currently? Well, I think the obvious answer there is no. There's this push that's coming down that it needs to you know, better represent our communities. It's not that there's a, a specific missing demographic. It's just that we need to understand the differences in humans. This isn't a race play. Ted, what do you think? I think the other thing uh, with diversity also leans back into the uh, the trust that exists out there. And part of that is that patients are open to clinical trials, but they have to hear about them. Doctors are open to clinical trials, but they need to know about them. But an interesting fact within our industry right now is that, and Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, I think 70% of principal investigators are white right now. And I think we found that, and and this goes back to something that we heard from uh, one of our colleagues at the FDA, is that Black patients hesitate to accept white physicians' advice when it comes to this point. And so I think that there's also an element of, we need to not only look at the diversity of the participants, but the diversity of the infrastructure and the resources that clinical trials brings to bear. I'm also in the autism community. There's no way, shape, or form clinical trials are autism-friendly. There's no way you can look at an autistic individual and say, you are qualified for a clinical trial. Here, go talk to this stranger, this totally different physician. I'm going to hand you off. That autistic individual would rather not go to the trial. They don't want that change in structure and plan. They want to be with their physician that Mm -hmm. they are used to. It's very critical to have that physician going down the pathway of patients who are risking their lives sometimes for clinical research, they don't want to start with a stranger. There's a reason why they chose that doctor. Question two, what are the potential barriers that prevent inclusion diversity in clinical trials right now? I think that there's some, just some physical barriers for awareness of trials. I think that if we were able to offer up clinical trials so that a physician could offer that up as a care option in their community, they'd be able to share that with the participant, whatever element of diversity we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And they would hear from that from their doctor, they trust that, and then be able to participate in that trial from their doctor's office. They don't need to travel out to a research site. And I think that there's just from my conversations with some of our customer sites and, and our CROs, there's a lack of interest to go from perhaps in the inner city out to the suburbs, to be at a research site, to be involved in a clinical trial. And so there's just peer location and travel requirements that are barriers to being as diverse as we should be in this market. Mm -hmm. What about you, Scott? What do you think? Well, I think some of the barriers that exist are coincidental. Most clinical trial sites are in suburban populations because that's where the doctors live. These suburban populations tend to be majority white. And so you have an primarily affluent white population that has access to this medicine. So I don't think that it's it's an intentional barrier. I think it's it's a barrier of convenience and, and coincidence. Mm-hmm. The question remains, how, so how do we get past that? Which Ted and I are on the same page with this, and, and Dr. Fosh, you are as well. The answer to diversity, to uh, inclusion, to access it all revolves around incorporating our physicians. And it's like everybody's forgotten that our doctors are as important as they are. Mm -hmm. For example, if any patient was to dial a number off of a billboard to request information about a clinical trial, and they think it's interesting as a patient, they think it's interesting. Who's the first person that they're going to ask if they think it's a good idea? Their physician. It's their doctor. They're going to talk to their doctor. And if their doctor has no idea what we're talking about, the doctor's going to say that. Doctors say, I don't know anything about it. And then so the, the doctor stops becoming a part of that decision-making process, which is so important for the research teams as well as, is, you know, having that connection and, and that cooperation. 
And so again, it continues to point to how do we find a way to engage our treating physicians to provide access points for research Mm -hmm. and provide access points for, for diversity. This diversity push is more than just researchers and scientists saying we need to solve this. There's actually legislature coming down that suggesting that pharma and sponsors need to have diversity plans. And so this is kind of rattling everybody a little bit, but I think it's rattling everybody in a very positive way. And the reason for this is 90% of clinical studies fail to enroll on time. Our ClinOps people, it is difficult for them to step outside the box and look for other opportunities when 90% of the time you're going to fail. There's a lack of of motivation for some of these ClinOps people to try and even risk new ideas. I think they're they're being given permission to explore finally. Right. They're being essentially forced outside of the box, which which is great for the industry. So now let's change gears a little bit. Can you tell me how MedVector plans to increase diversity and inclusion in clinical research? The concept of of MedVector is it's all about engaging that treating physician and enabling the treating physician essentially to host clinical trial appointments from their practice without becoming an investigator and without triggering a clinical trial site. By enabling these treating physicians to host the clinical trial appointments from their practice, it allows that physician to maintain control of that patient relationship and essentially do some handholding while the patient is there. And guess what? All of a sudden, if it's going well, not only is this physician now excited to prescribe the medication when it comes Mm -hmm. out, but that physician might have five, six, seven, eight, 20 more patients that could be a fit for this. And what does that do? It means that the study is still at the site while the patient is in the hands of our physician and everyone wins. We're also at a crossroads that sometimes happen when you get government with initiatives that can help drive change across an industry. Mm-hmm. Now we have some things happening with the FDA and some elements that they're putting out there for pharma, for diversity. And we're at the crossroads where we have some technologies that are happening. We have some ability to expand the reach of a site. So they do have tools and logistics to reach into those communities so that that specialist can host a clinical trial visit in a FDA compliant way. And that is illuminating this issue and opening up all sorts of opportunities for us to really find more participants across the board, but certainly focused on the diversity elements. So it sounds like if we can access the community physicians, we could theoretically increase the diversity of physician populations and therefore increase the diversity of patient populations by proxy. Yep. And we, and we can do it through the existing infrastructure. While I still believe that we do need more diverse uh, investigators, through our model, that's unnecessary because we're still engaging those community physicians in a different way. And you know what? It's at the community level, Dr. Fox, that this is going to be impacted. You know, the piece, we need to have it so that that specialist, that community physician that is in a Asian, a Black, Hispanic area, they are aware of these trials. That is something that will be impacting their patients directly. And so it's not necessarily something that is across the board, we need to have these big initiatives. It's individuals that are gonna make the change for this type of uh, diversity increase. I had a thought this week as we're talking about diversity, as I was talking about this podcast. And Scott, as you were talking about how big pharma is really starting to look at this and the guidance is coming through legislation and the FDA. As a scientist, if you were to increase the diversity in a clinical trial, you would theoretically increase the variation in data, the standard deviation and the reactions. If you increase standard deviation, you would theoretically reduce the power of your statistics and require a higher in value to create the same significance. Is that safe to say? Yes. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering where you're going here with this. But yes, I agree with all of that. Therefore, if you have to have a higher in value for the same amount of significance, you would theoretically have to enroll a higher value of patients to achieve the same level of clinical significance. Significance. Yeah, I still agree with you. I, I, I'm not sure that pharma is going to like the 
this conversation and where it's going. Well, that's where I'm saying, I think that now is a really good time to think about the cost savings we have to do now to accommodate the required diversity coming down the pipeline. Well, you know, I guess to take that thought a little farther, today's process is to reach out and go grab that participant one patient at a time. If you go to the community, if you go to that specialist and you find that specialist that can assist with this trial, now you're not finding one participant, you're finding 10 participants. That's the way you can better manage that. The med vector solution, for an example, is going to be literally the solution for the FDA's diversity. It's going to be necessary. Yeah. It's going to be necessary because this is this is how you enable doctors to cross-refer within the same hospital system to where you're not asking every physician within Stanford to be an investigator for you know a new IP. The other thing, Dr. Fox, that I think is important, there's all the other elements that uh, are going to help with increasing diversity. And that's around some of the good things that are happening with the Save Our Sites conference that's coming up and SOS and being able to have a focus at the research site. It's the SCR conference that's occurring in, what is it, March 29th and 30th here at the end of the month in Austin. It's what the Milliken Institute and and, uh, Yasmeen Long are doing with diversity. It's what blackdoctors.org is doing uh, with communicating out to their 20 million plus uh, membership on the impact that clinical trials can have on their care, both for the participant, but also the specialist. Because I trust my doctor. My doctor says I want to do something I'll do it. So Ted, with your impressive background in working with all of these physicians, what is the secret to working with a physician? What is the secret to trying something new within a practice? Isn't that the secret sauce? Because honestly, there is a vendor or a person coming to the doctors constantly with the next shiny object that's going to change their world. It's going to change their practice. Really, the key piece that happens for a doctor at the end of the day is that they want to own that relationship with their patient. They want to be the one that's going to be able to assist them. They want to make sure that from a patient standpoint, if they think that there's some better way, they're not giving that patient away because you know what? The patient is their customer. Mm -hmm. That's who they deal with. Why do you think people might not adopt solutions for diversity and inclusion? Because it's new and scary. Different. Yeah. That's change can be perceived as very dangerous. And that's part of what you need to have multiple vectors coming in to help that change occur, whether it be FDA, whether it be technology, whether it be education and transparency of the need for this in the marketplace. And all these vectors are happening. It is there for us as a marketplace to jump on and really make a big impact with diversity and inclusion. All right, so diversity and inclusion. Scott, Ted, any final thoughts, any final words? The the challenge that we face is something that I call moving at the speed of pharma. And it is a very slow moving animal. The risk that we're taking is running out of time. And so if things move too slowly, you got startups that run out of funding. The problem is you're now looking for big ideas out of big companies and that is hard. It's really going to take some advocacy. We have the power, we have the solutions, but we're moving at the speed of pharma. It's going to require baby steps of change. And we believe that MedVector is one of those wonderful baby steps because it works within the existing protocol. It's a site utility. This is that baby step that everyone's looking for. And it's a big shoe in for diversity. I think that there's an an opportunity really to leverage all the good things that we have in the industry. Let's trust the sites and the experience that the PI, sub-eyes, and study coordinators have. Let's trust the relationship that our specialists and our community doctors have with their patients. And then if we're going to move the needle on diversity, it's individual conversations. Let's get down to those one-on-one conversations and do it with that single step of educating a specialist so they can bring a trial to their patient population. But it's at the community level. It's at the doctor level. Ted, you made a great point. Let's stop trying to solve diversity by buying a bigger database. Right. That's not how you solve diversity. We've got to get people in trials. We've got to have this happen. Let's enroll them. Let's go in and get into the details because that's going to drive diversity. Scott, Ted, thanks for coming on the CRP and Central. The audience, they're going to love this interview. Really appreciate having you. Anytime. Dr. Fox, thank you, sir. Jade believes there are cultural, political, 
and physical barriers that keep diverse patient populations from accessing clinical trials in our community. She works actively front and center to ensure everyone knows who she is and she earns their trust with selfless acts of routine kindness. We must engage with our community to inform them of clinical trial opportunities. We must be present and be heard and we must include everyone in our trials, regardless of the languages they speak or the locations that they live. Scott and Ted have seen across the country the same story. Patients are in our communities and they would participate in research if their physicians offered them. They simply do not have access to the clinical trials because their local specialists either do not know about the trials or they just don't want to lose their patients' care. Most physicians are not interested in being clinical research investigators, and that's okay. However, should their professional decisions deny patients opportunities to access clinical trials? Scott and Ted's solution, MedVector, bridges this by offering fully compliant opportunities to participate in research at their local physician's offices without the need to be a clinical site. Both interviews confirmed diversity is a major concern in clinical research. Jade engages the community as a whole, while Scott and Ted target local specialists as clinical site collaborators to recruit. There was one resounding solution across all of our conversations. The number one key to diversity inclusion is relationships. Having those individual conversations earning the trust of our community to help and support each other, and frankly, making diversity a personal priority. Do me a favor, go into your bathroom right now and look into the mirror. Every one of you will see a totally different image. Now, open up the medicine cabinet behind the mirror and you will find that everyone hurts. Everyone needs medicine. Everyone should know that all of that medicine is tested in a clinical trial in a way that everyone can trust. Diversity and inclusion in clinical research is not easy. It is going to be hard to operate and it is going to cost resources, but it is the only way we as a society can ensure the health and success of every patient we serve. That concludes today's diversity podcast. Thank you again to our community voice volunteers for their diligent support of RCRPN icebreaker skits. Thank you to Jade, Ted, and Scott for offering their expertise into a historically difficult topic to discuss. And remember everyone, the first annual Save Our Sites conference is on February 2nd, 2024 in Tucson, Arizona. Please register today at saveoursites.com to support the mission. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on CRPN Central.